Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hälsosnack produceras av hälsocoacherna Lotta Lagerqvist och Victoria Karinci i syfte att inspirera till ett hälsosammare och härligare liv. Lotta och Victoria driver också hälsoföretaget Vitalista, där de erbjuder hälsocoaching enskilt, i grupp och online. Läs gärna mer på vitalista.se. Hej Lotta! Hej Victoria! Och hej du som lyssnar och varmt, varmt välkommen till ett nytt superintressant avsnitt av Hälsosnack. Idag så ska vi prata om vete och gluten. Genom åren så har vi pratat om gluten och hur det påverkar hälsan sådär mest i förbifarten. För mig så har gluten och vetefritt varit självklart ända sedan jag första gången gjorde en clean reset och verkligen fick uppleva hur kroppen påverkas av det. Ja, och mina ögon öppnades ju för hur gluten påverkar mig i samband med att jag drabbades av vuxen akne och sen först därefter insåg att inte heller magen mådde bra. Ja, och man kan ju säga att vi hade tur att kroppen faktiskt reagerar så att vi märker att vi inte mår bra vete. För som vi kommer prata om i avsnittet så märker inte alla av de negativa effekterna direkt. Utan det märks först efter många år när en tyst inflammation skadat vävnader i kroppen. För det är faktiskt så att vete skapar läckande tarm och en inflammatorisk process varje gång för alla som äter vete eller gluten. Mm. Och det här är ju många gånger en bidragande faktor när det kommer till just autoimmuna sjukdomar. Så det är inte så konstigt heller att de flesta kostmetoder med fokus på läkande och antiinflammatorisk kost faktiskt är gluten- och vetefria. Och idag så ska vi äntligen gå till botten med vad det är som gör vete och gluten så skadliga för oss. Så i dagens avsnitt så kommer du få lära dig allt du behöver veta och lite mer det till. Japp, för våran gäst är nämligen ingen mindre än läkaren Tom O'Brien som är en av världens främsta experter när det kommer till hur gluten och vete påverkar kroppen och kan vara en tungt bidragande orsak till autoimmuna sjukdomar. O'Brien undervisar bland annat på Institute for Functional Medicine och har skrivit flera böcker, bland annat The Autoimmune Fix och You Can Fix Your Brain. Han har också skapat dokumentärserien Betrayal, The Autoimmune Disease Solution They're Not Telling You. Dr. Tom har hjälpt tusentals människor till bättre hälsa och är en av de mest pedagogiska personer vi känner till som kan förklara så att alla förstår. Och vi är så glada att ha honom som vår gäst idag. Ja, verkligen. Och doktor Tom vill gärna dela med sig av sin dokumentärserie till dig som lyssnar. Så att vi kommer att länka till den i ett blogginlägg på vitalista.se. Och där kommer vi också att göra en svensk sammanfattning med de viktigaste punkterna och informationen som vi pratar om i intervjun. 
Så tycker du att det är svårt att hänga med eller helt enkelt bara önska se det svart på vitt på svenska så hittar du det på bloggen på vitalista.se. Och när du väl är där, missa inte att signa upp dig för vårt nyhetsbrev. Du får ett skönt yogapass på köpet. Och vi lovar att inte spamma dig för vi skickar inte ut några nyhetsbrev i onödan. Men bra, då är det dags för intervjun. Och du, i början av avsnittet så delar doktor Tom med sig av en personlig historia. Men om du har ont om tid och vill gå liksom direkt till glutenproblematiken så kan du spola fram ungefär 20 minuter in i intervjun. Då kör vi! Hello doktor Tom and uh, welcome on our show Hälsosnack. We are so excited to have you. Thank you very much. It's an honor. Um, uh, Before we started recording, we were talking about when we met previously in my talk in Sweden about five or six years ago, and I just loved Sweden. And uh, it it was a wintertime presentation. And so on the day after the presentation, our host introduced me to one of his friends who was the world champion senior telemark skier. And, he, right. and, and he's, he's from Stockholm or somewhere in the area. And he took me out and introduced me to telemark skiing. And it was such a wonderful experience, I mean, to have the world leader, the number one guy in the world, teaching me the basics of how to stand on skis. But the experience was one of reinforcing the kindness and the engagement of the Swedish people that I had experienced before and have experienced many times after that. So it's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank oh, you. that's a lovely story. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, and we're so glad and honored to have you on our show. And we both have learned so much from you over the years in various summits and podcasts. We're so much looking forward to share this interview with our listeners um, because there's no one that explains that brilliantly and pedagogical the negative aspects and mechanisms of um, wheat and gluten as you do. Thank you. And we can't wait to dig into this knowledge about our health, our immune system, and the link to gluten. But first, we would like to ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us how you got into this field of knowledge. And we know your own story is so fascinating and truly shows the immense impact of this. Oh, thank you. Um, You know, uh, some, some events have occurred in my life in this last few months that have reinforce for me, what's the most important message to bring out to people? And uh, when I'm talking about a particular topic, I often will use the phrase, it's a English phrase, that's basic 101 information. And what I mean by 101 is that in the, in the United States, when you go to the university, the first course you take in your first year is 101. And the second course in the first year would be 102, and then 103, and then 104. And then you go to second year courses, and that's 201. And the third year courses are 301 and 401. And after you graduate with your baccalaureate degree, if you choose, you can go on for a master's in the topic of your interest. And then you can go on after that for a PhD 
to become a world expert, uh, a doctor in your field of interest, whether it's microbiology or environmental medicine, doesn't matter the topic. The structure of education is the same. 101, 201, 301, 401, master's, PhD. So when people want to be healthier, it's so difficult in an interview to reach everyone because some people are at 101 level. They don't know anything about these concepts. They haven't been exposed yet. Some people are at master's level, and it can be boring if you're talking about 101 with them. So how do you reach the most people with information that would be of value? And so I want to tell you the story of the birth of my son, which occurred four months ago. Uh, because I think it represents the end stage that everyone wants in the efforts they make to be healthier. So my wife is much younger than I am. I'm 69, and my wife is 27 years younger. Um, And I met her in a talk that I was doing in Dublin. And uh, uh, we really just caught each other's eye, and that evening there was a uh, dinner for me and with the organizing committee, and she was on that committee. And, and at the end of the evening, we happened to be walking out the door side by side of the restaurant, and uh, I looked at her and said, oh, hello, and she said, hello, and I said, I just stopped, and the people were behind us, and I said, I like you. I leave in the morning would you like to go out for a drink now? And she said, yes. And so we said goodbye to everyone. And we went off and had a drink or two and discussion. And I said, I've got a two week. uh, No, I, I have a three day break at the end of this two week tour that I'm doing in Europe. And I was going to go skiing in Sweden with my friends. (laughs) Coincidentally, (laughs) But I, I'm going to come back to Dublin for you. And she said, okay. And so I went back to Dublin after my tour in Lisbon, Rome, and London, and I think that's where I was going. Uh, and on our third date, we're walking down the street, and arm in arm, and I stopped and said, you want kids, don't you? You want children. And she said, yes. And I looked at her and I said, all right, that's not a problem. Obviously, and you may not believe this, but I believe we've been together before because it's effortless with you. It's just effortless. And the intimacy is good. So it really depends on who puts the cap on the toothpaste and who puts the toilet seat down. Can we live together and be happy? That's really the bottom line. Can our two personalities really get along? Because we've got all of the basics here already. It's obvious. And I don't have time to mess around, you know. So I'm willing to give 100% everything I've got to make this the best relationship it can possibly be. Are you willing to do the same? And she looked me in the eyes and said, yes. And I said, okay. Move to San Diego. 
<laughs> so in six weeks, she moved from Dublin to San Diego and we started our relationship. Now, I'm a direct kind of guy. And what I'm about to say is going to startle some people. But I said to her, when she came to San Diego, you want children. I'm good with that. I already have two children and I have two grandchildren, but I'm good with that. You know, and I can give 100 percent. I think I know how to do it right now. <laughs> the second time around. But I've got to tell you something. Obviously, neither of us. This is our first time in a relationship. Now, when a man ejaculates inside of a woman, there are millions of virus, viruses that are in the ejaculate material and bacteria. Millions. And some of that accumulates. Some of it stays in the environment. It finds a home inside of you. And we pass on generation to generation through our DNA the characteristics of the baby. I don't want somebody else's influence on any children that I'm bringing into this world. So are you willing to go through detoxification programs to help both of us to clean up? And she looked at me and first was a little startled because she never heard these concepts before. And then she said, well, this makes sense. Okay. And so we've spent quite a bit of time at Swiss Mountain Clinic in Switzerland in the last five years. I've brought many, many people there. Uh, we send out announcements. Hi, I'm going to be at Swiss Mountain Clinic for two weeks. If you want to come and go through their program, I'll be answering questions every day. We'll have meals together and all of that. And so we've met a lot of people who have come when my wife and I have been there and uh, it's been a wonderful experience, and she very courageously has gone through very advanced detox programs so that her body was as clean as it could be. We um, got pregnant, and um, her pregnancy was perfect, perfect. She's beautiful. Uh, her thighs started to fill out more. Her buttocks filled out more which is good, that's normal, because that's where reserves are to make breast milk and to hold the woman up during the pregnancy, but also the reserves to make breast milk. And I, and I, I was so happy because I finally had my partner with a Brazilian butt, and I've wanted that my whole life, you know? And so I said, what a great benefit. What a great benefit. Thank you so much. And her pregnancy was perfect. And, of course, being who I am and who she is, she's a nutritionist, um, we had two midwives, two doulas, a hypnotherapist from rural Ireland, a uh, Mexican shaman to deal with past energies, uh, uh, and a couple of other therapists, all oh, wow. helping Marzi, pre, uh, water birth therapists, all helping Marzi in the pregnancy. And she did her hypnotherapy practices every day had a consultation with the therapist once a week or once every two weeks. And so when the pregnancy was to come to fruition, the due date for Gio was December 24th, the day before Christmas. Marzi's mother passed away of cancer on Christmas Day. So 
we, Marzi was not going into labor. She was dealing with her grief and, uh, uh, she did it in a very healthy way. And, you know, those kinds of wounds never go away. You just integrate them into who you are. Right. So seven days later, her water breaks and we're ready. We're ready for all this. And so we call the midwife when the contractions are about five minutes apart. So both midwives come, both doulas come. We fill up the, the pool, you know, the, uh, for the birth in the water. Uh, we've got the little lights around the room. I'm playing Mozart in the background. Marzi's doing her hypnotherapy, and she's just breathing very calmly. And the midwife says, well, your wife is so calm. It's really good to see you. So this is going to be a while. Uh, and after a couple of hours, a couple more hours, they said, well, you know, it's going to be five, six hours. I mean, she's like, but why don't we just check? Even though she's so relaxed, let's just check. So they checked. She was 10 centimeters. Oh, my God. 10 with no cry out of pain ever because hypnotherapy works if you practice it. And so Marzi was ready. And they said, oh, my goodness, this baby's coming now. We've never seen this before. We've never, But Marzi was practicing for months and months and very healthy during the pregnancy. So she starts pushing, but the baby doesn't come down. And she's pushing and there's no change. Um, then eventually, and the, so the midwives gave Marzi an herb for stronger contractions. Now she's feeling some pain, says, oh, and a little bit, but no screaming, just breathing, trying to relax with it. And, but the baby's not coming down. And when we look, I can see the folds on the scalp of, you know, you, you can see the baby's um, scalp and it's folding, meaning being pressed down. And the skin is being contracted. But she says, you know, I can't push any harder. Something's wrong. Said, so, okay, we're going to the hospital. We, you know, we were prepared. If there was an emergency, we'd go to the hospital. So the midwife calls the doctor. We go to the hospital. I'm driving, and I'm originally from Detroit. I'm a very good driver. But I drove a little aggressively. My wife's in labor, right? And we, we get to the hospital. By the time we get to the hospital, the herbs were taking effect. And now she was in pain. And now she is, is, is vocalizing her pain. So we pull up to the ER. They come out with a gurney. We put her in the gurney. Say, okay, let's go to admissions. That's no time. Directly to surgery. Let's go. And so they run down. The, we're pushing this gurney down the hall to the elevator. Move, move, move. And we're, you know, and it's one of those scenes you see in the movies. We go up to the fifth floor, go into the ER room or not the ER, the, the surgery room. And the doctor says, when did the water break? We tell him, okay, well, you've got a couple of hours, if you wish, to try continue for natural birth, a couple of hours. And so Marzi's now, we, of course, want natural birth, if possible. And after about 10 minutes, uh, the doctor says, oh, the baby's not coming down. Baby's not coming. And we're monitoring the baby's heart rate all the time. Back at the house, we were monitoring the heart rate so the baby's safe. But now the baby's heart rate's starting to fluctuate a little bit. And Marzi looked at me and said, I, I can't push any harder. I can't. I said, okay, we need a C-section. And they jumped into action. 
jumped into action. This team was very good at what they were doing. And there was difficulty with the C-section because the baby apparently had its hands under its chin, lifting the head up so that there was no way the baby was going to come down the canal because the chin's supposed to be tucked in and the baby comes out head first. But the chin was up and it was just not possible. And they, they had a hard time getting the baby out. Well, Gio was born, not breathing, blue, an Apgar of four, meaning he was not alive. His heart was not beating. The pediatrician immediately clipped the umbilical cord, cut the cord, went right over to the pediatric station and and did the bulb up the nose to get anything out, the bulb down the mouth to get anything out, put the breathing mask on, pumping. Gio's not breathing yet. So she has her assistant keep the pumping motion while she compressed his chest. Now he starts breathing, screaming his bloody head off. He opens his eyes, and there's these bright lights, five giants in white masks, white hats, white gowns. All you can see is some eyes. And this is his first view in the world. Terrifying to a newborn coming into the world. But uh, he made it. He made it. Then, of course, because of what I know, the fear is brain damage that may have occurred from oxygen not getting to his brain. There's no way to tell. No way to tell. You just have to wait and see. So we take our son home, and first couple of weeks, you know, we're just in love. He's goo-gooing, and everything looks good. The breast milk's coming in very full. And uh, because of how Marzi has lived her life for the last five years, her body is working very well to produce breast milk. Gio's feeding very well. Uh, and he had one episode of uh, uh, a spasm that could have been an uh, infantile spasm, might be a sign of brain damage. I immediately am on the phone, and I find out who's the world's best pediatric neurologist, and I got the referral, and I was going to make a call. I said, I'll just wait a day or two and see. And he never had another incident. And now we just had his four-month um, pediatric visit yesterday. He's at the top of the scales in height, weight, reflexes. Everything is perfect, just perfect. And the pediatrician commented, as everyone comments, that he's looking right through them to their soul when he looks in their eyes. This boy is as perfect a human specimen right now very present, very grounded, even with the very traumatic birth, because we are with him 24-7, and we're always giving him love, always kissing him, always. And when a door closes and he's startled, we go, oh, it's okay, hi. And then he starts smiling. He starts smiling. So we're teaching him how to deal with trauma, so that the initial trauma he experienced coming into this world will not imprint on him and how he deals with the world. And I tell you this long story because Marzi in pregnancy did PhD level things for a healthy pregnancy. In the birth process, everything was going PhD level in the birth process, but we couldn't take into account 
He had his hands under his chin, lifting his chin up. There was no way he's coming down the birth canal. No way. And now her breast milk is so full, there's this thing that I never knew about called a haka. And a haka is a silicone bulb that you put on the nipple that he's not breastfeeding from. It creates a little suction. And so the uh, breast that he's not feeding from is also being emptied into the haka when he's breastfeeding. And then we take that milk, we put it in silicone bags in the freezer. We have um, over 120 bags of the best breast milk in the world from a woman whose body is as pure as can be. She eats organic. She takes lots of nutrients, lots of fish oils. In her coffee every day, I put a big teaspoon of ghee, two egg yolks, and medium-chain triglycerides in her coffee every day. So she's getting all of these good fats. Babies are building a million neurons a minute in their first year of life. It's unbelievable. A million neurons a minute. And the most important food they need, there are many components, but the most important food is good fats. Marzi is getting the best fats possible in her diet. PhD level stuff. So when we talk about women's women's health or family health, I can talk about 101 or I can talk about PhD or anything in between. And what's important in my mind for your listeners is to understand the differentiations. There are some things that will be above your level of understanding right now, but you need, maybe you need to accept, all right, I'm at 201 level. I just need to learn these basics first, and then I can learn a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. That is the only way we're going to turn around these healthcare problems that we have in this world today. When I autograph books, it's always the same. And what I write is base hits win the ball game. And in the American game of baseball, you have a stick and you hit a ball and then you run around bases, uh, first base, second base, third base, and home. And the goal is to get the runner all the way around back to home. But everybody wants a home run. They think of Babe Ruth. Everyone wants a home run. But when you hit a home run means all the way around the bases. But when you hit a base hit and the next guy hits a base hit and the next guy hits a base hit, you score more runs that way and you win the ball game. When you learn the 101 stuff and then you learn the 201 stuff and then you learn the 301 stuff and then you learn the 401 stuff and then you learn the master stuff and then you learn the PhD level stuff. Now you have a baby whose chances of having a healthy life were very compromised at birth, who is now thriving, and the pediatrician says, this baby is at the top of the scales. This is really marvelous. So that's the message I want to start with for everyone, is to recognize you're not, many people are not at PhD level right now. That's okay. And you start with the basics. What is good protein? You start with the basics. How much water do I need? You start with the basics. What are good fats and what are bad fats? And then you'll learn all of the other stuff by listening to your podcast and every guest that you have bit by bit by bit. But the theme is base hits win the ballgame. 
Mm. And your son was absolutely beautiful because we got a little glimpse of him before. Oh, thank you. So sweet. Yes. Thank you. So happy that that ended really well. Thank you. Mm. Yeah. So today we are going to talk about gluten 101 or maybe 102 or 103, but I think somewhere around there. Yes. And as we've already said, you are... Uh, one of you are the most brilliant person, so knowledgeable to talk about this, and also the way you explain how gluten and wheat actually affects your body. And you have so good stories <laughs> that really makes you understand. <laughs> yeah, it, it was hard. Uh, uh, quitting bread was. Uh, far within within me it was hard for me to quit bread i quit sugar no problem but quitting bread until i heard your story so and that was six years ago now so yeah so that's why we brought you here to to let our listeners also hear you talk about uh okay. gluten well let's let's talk about the 101s of gluten yeah first, first gluten is not bad for you Bad gluten is bad for you. There's gluten in rice. There's gluten in corn. There's gluten in quinoa. There's gluten in wheat and rye and barley. Gluten is the title of a category of proteins in grains. Now, the ones that are a problem are the ones in wheat, rye, and barley. And That's the first basic thing, that it's not all gluten, it's the glutens in wheat, rye, and barley that are the problem. Now, somebody can be allergic to rice, of course, or to amaranth, or to quinoa, or to corn, of course. But for this discussion about gluten sensitivity, it's the gluten proteins in wheat, rye, and barley. That's the first point. The second point is that the bigger picture is wheat, not just gluten. There are 62 different components in wheat that have been shown to activate the human immune system to fight them. Gluten is the most popular component in wheat that is known about. Many, many studies on that, and the general public thinks about gluten and gluten-free diet. But a basic understanding is to recognize It's not just gluten. There are different components in wheat. Um, There are, I don't need to geek out on you, but amylase trypsin inhibitors, the lectins in wheat are called wheat germagglutinins, a very recognized contributor to unexplained miscarriages is lectin sensitivity. And the most common lectins that people eat are the lectins in wheat. And they're called wheat germagglutinins. So there are many different components in wheat that may be a problem. Why is that important? Because when you're testing to see, do I have a problem with wheat or not, the vast majority of laboratories and the vast majority of doctors are only checking one gluten protein. It's a 33-amino acid protein called alpha-glidin, and it's important But they're only checking one. But wait a minute, doctor, you said there are 62. Yes, there are. Well, why are they only checking one? That's the million-dollar question. Laboratories don't want to spend the money to buy the new equipment, and they, they would have to change all of their procedures, 
all of their test report forms, the software, they would have to change everything to expand to be more current in testing for a wheat sensitivity. So the tests that are offered now, most of the tests that are offered look for alpha-glidin, and some laboratories even call it gluten. But there are 17 different proteins that fall under the category of gluten in wheat, let alone 62 components in wheat, but there are 17 different gluten proteins. Well, why are you only testing the 33 amino acid? Why are you only testing one? Well, we've always done it that way, and that's what we test for. Well, if it comes back positive, you got a problem with wheat. But if it comes back negative, it doesn't mean that you don't have a problem with wheat. It means you don't have a problem with that specific gluten protein. Now, the studies tell us that 50% of celiacs have a problem with that gluten protein, but 50% don't. And if the only test you do is looking for that gluten protein, which most laboratories, that's all they look at, if that's the only thing you do and it comes back negative, you think you're fine to eat wheat, and you may not be. So that's the second basic point, is that when you're testing, you have to do comprehensive testing. And I know that they're available in Sweden now. The tests are available. The laboratory is called Cyrex, C-Y-R-E-X, and it comes, the, it comes out of the U.S., but the distributor for Europe is in London, and I know that they have services available in Sweden, in Stockholm, I know that. So there's, there's more comprehensive testing available. The problem is most doctors just don't know about it, and it rocks their boat to think about doing something outside the norm of what they usually do or what their hospital offers. They just think, well, this is it. You know, this is the test that we do. Yes, but doctor, wasn't that test designed in 1997? Well, yes, it was, and it's a very good test. Yes, but that means it's almost 25 years old, and it may be a good, is it comprehensive? Well, it's, it's, it's a good test, yes, but it's not comprehensive. There are 62 components in wheat that may cause a problem for humans. Why are we only testing one? And they don't have an answer, and they usually get upset with you when you ask those questions because yeah. they, they so don't. Here we have, I have a lot of clients coming, um, and uh, um, they are upset because their doctors, they have tested for transglutaminase right. and then two genes. And if that comes out negative, then that's it. They won't do anything more because they consider that to be 100%. Well, let's talk about that. What is it a hundred? It is a hundred percent. It is. But what is it a hundred percent of? Yeah. So let me explain because I've read the science and I understand it very thoroughly. So when laboratories came up with the test for transglutaminase, when the researchers came up with the test, they wanted to see how many celiac patients are positive for transglutaminase. And the way they do that is they look for people with the diagnosis of celiac disease. To get the diagnosis of celiac disease, you have to have an endoscopy, which means a tube down the stomach, into the stomach, into the small intestine. They clip out a little piece of tissue. They bring it out. And they look at it under a microscope. And they're looking to see if the microvilli, 
you know, the old carpeting from the 1980s and 1990s in the U.S. We call it shag carpeting. What what do you call it in Sweden? Where there's that the big pieces of riamatta maybe. Yeah. Okay, and then and then when the the newer carpeting that doesn't have these big loose pieces, um, we call that berber. So when they take out a piece of intestine and look under a microscope, they're looking to see if the shags are there. They're called microvilli. They're looking to see if they're there. When they are worn down and they're not there anymore, that's called villus atrophy. The villi have atrophy. That's celiac disease. So they look for people with the diagnosis of villus atrophy, celiac, and they give the diagnosis of celiac disease. And then they check to see what's their transglutaminase. And 97, 98% of the people that have celiac disease, the transglutaminase is positive. So it's a very good test for total villus atrophy celiac disease. Now this is this is 401 stuff. So stay stay with me on this for for our listeners. So that means when the villi have worn down, that's total villus atrophy celiac disease and the transglutaminase test is a good test, positive almost all the time, 97% of the time. But people don't wake up one day and all of a sudden their villi are gone. That it takes Seven years of the villi with all of the inflammation in the intestines to slowly wear down the villi, wear down the villi, wear down the villi. Seven years before you get total villus atrophy. That's why some people, they have a family member with celiac, they have stomach problems, so they go check, no, you don't have celiac disease. And five years later, seven years later, they've got celiac disease. Because they did have it at the time, but it just wasn't at the end stage yet. So that's called the spectrum of autoimmunity, that there is a spectrum that people are on. And if you are at the end stage of villus atrophy and they're gone, total villus atrophy, you got celiac disease. And the test is very positive. But if you do the transglutaminase test, At the earlier stages, the test is only correct 31% of the time. That means it's wrong 7 out of 10 times. But your doctors don't know that because your doctors have been taught, you want to identify celiac disease, you do transglutaminase. But to, to be qualified with a diagnosis of celiac disease, you have to have total villus atrophy. Well, what about the people, the vast majority of people who are on the spectrum and they just haven't gotten to that point of total villus atrophy yet? Well, they're missed completely. And the doctors tell you you're fine when you're not. You're not. Just go back in a few years and now you've got celiac disease. So transglutaminase is a very accurate test for end-stage celiac disease. It is a terrible test for earlier stages of celiac disease. Terrible. Not to be used. And the science is very clear. There are many studies on this. Unfortunately, the doctors don't read the studies. They don't have time. That the laboratory representative hands them the studies to read. And so they read the study that says 97% accurate transglutaminase 
for celiac disease. Oh, okay, so fine. But they don't think about the spectrum of celiac disease, they, that there's earlier stages. We know, in, and, and perhaps we'll have another session sometime in the future about autoimmunity in general and the concept of predictive autoimmunity. You can identify the earlier stages but of autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid and lupus and uh, Hashimoto's thyroid, scleroderma, uh, psoriasis, you, almost all of them. You can identify the earlier stages, which gives you a window of opportunity to do something about it before you get to the end stage. But that's not today's discussion. But the doctors regarding celiac disease should understand they're looking at end-stage celiac disease. And when they do the blood test for transglutaminase, it is a very accurate test for end-stage celiac disease. But it's a very bad idea to wait for that end-stage, oh right? Goodness, you yes. won't know it when you have your symptoms. So what do you, what's your recommendation? What should you test instead? You do a more comprehensive test. And... Um, there are two laboratories. Cyrex Laboratories was opened in 2010. I had the privilege of working with Cyrex to open that lab and uh, design these tests that Cyrex offers. Um, I have no financial interest in them whatsoever. I wish I owned stock in them, but I don't. Uh, but they've grown tremendously in the last 11 years. Uh, they're doing very well because doctors find the, uh, so much benefit in using these more comprehensive tests. Cyrex will look at transglutaminase, but they look at 10 other components of wheat, not just the 133 amino acid peptide alpha-glidin. They look at other components. And so you're looking for a wheat-related disorder. If you find celiac disease when you're looking for a wheat-related disorder, okay, good. You know specifically. But now let's talk about a 301 concept with the problems with wheat. That in Italy, there are 36 different offices that have been designated by the government as gluten-related disorder offices. 36. I think it's 28 gastroenterology, three or four pediatric, a couple psychiatry. Um, they're all over the country. And when a general practitioner, a doctor, suspects their patient has a problem with wheat, they send them to one of these 36 clinics. Because if you get a diagnosis from one of these 36 clinics of a wheat-related disorder, your gluten-free food is a tax deduction. So... The government has set this up. That organization of 36 offices, they've done a lot of studies. You know, I mean, that's where the, the meat is. You want to find people with wheat problems and how they feel and how do you fix it? Here's where you look because these offices focus on it all day. They looked at over 15,000 people who had been referred to them with a suspected problem with gluten or with wheat. What did they find? they found that 7% of those people had celiac disease. 93% had wheat-related disorders, but not celiac. They had depression from wheat. They had psoriasis from wheat. 
They had rheumatoid from wheat. They didn't have celiac from wheat. So celiac is very important to check for, but it is not the only manifestation of a problem with wheat. And your doctors have never been trained on this. They've been taught in the textbooks, if you've got a problem with wheat, that's celiac disease. And that's not correct. That is a historical misconception. That what we now know is that if you have a problem with wheat, it can manifest as almost anything. I mean, when you read the literature, a three-year-old with a tumor on her eyeball, she goes on a gluten-free diet, and they diagnose the tumor as Kaposi's sarcoma from HIV because mom was positive for HIV. But when they checked the little girl's blood, she didn't have HIV. So they said, what is it? What is it? And the ophthalmologist said, Mom, we're going to have to put your daughter under general anesthesia and do a biopsy of the tumor on the eyeball. And she said, no, 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 please, no. Our daughter was just diagnosed four days ago with celiac disease, and the doctor put her under general anesthesia, and she hasn't really recovered from that general anesthesia yet. Can we just wait a few days, please, until she's fully back to normal, and then, of course, we'll do whatever we need to do. So the doctor said, all right, come back next week. So they had taken a picture of this tumor on the eye, and they come back the next week, and the doctor's about to put the little baby under general anesthesia, but he looks in the eye and says, well, wait a minute. Goes to the file, pulls out the picture, and looks at this, takes a picture of it. The tumor is smaller. Now, the gastroenterologist, when they did the endoscopy for celiac, he said, put your daughter on a gluten-free diet immediately, and they did So the ophthalmologist saw there was something different with this tumor. It it wasn't the same. Let's just come back in another week. So they come back a week later, the tumor's smaller. And then you see the pictures at two weeks, the tumor's smaller. At two months, the tumor is gone. And the only thing they did different was a gluten-free diet. And they, they waited nine months before they wrote this case study up in the medical journals And they show the pictures and they said, this was an autoimmune response from a sensitivity to wheat that caused the tumor in the eye. And I have many, many studies of joint problems, skin problems, brain. You reverse schizophrenia on a gluten-free diet sometimes. Just Google schizophrenia and gluten and you'll see all the studies that come up that it just depends on your genetics as to where a problem with wheat will manifest itself. But if you're only looking for celiac disease, you'll find seven out of a hundred. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, and I think, I mean, this is so interesting. And I think that one of the problems is also that you're only looking for gut issues. Yes. Like I eat pasta, I eat bread, and uh, um, my my gut is fine. I don't have any problems. So people don't know that a wheat sensitivity or gluten sensitivity can manifest anywhere in the body. Yeah, I have um, a training course for healthcare practitioners. I don't care what if you're a counselor; it, it doesn't matter. Everybody needs to know about this, so people can take our course online. It's called a Certified Gluten-Free Practitioner course. And we show them the science. The science, the studies are really clear. For every one person that has a gut problem from wheat, there are eight people that don't. They've got brain problems or skin problems or joint problems. They don't have gut problems. So if you are determining whether you should investigate wheat Uh, by whether or not you have gut problems, you'll miss seven out of eight. And when you see that, and I tell every practitioner, print a copy of this study out, highlight it with a yellow highlighter, put it in clear plastic so it doesn't get all beat up, and show this to your patient. One out of every eight has gut problems. Seven out of eight don't. And so that will stop that logic for them right away. I know you said that the ones with the gut problems from wheat, they are the lucky ones. The lucky ones. That's right. They're the lucky ones because when they eat something and they feel bad in their stomach, they know, (laughs) oh, I shouldn't have eaten that pizza, I guess. But those that have thyroid problems don't know. They're just tired or they're depressed or they're cold and their gut feels fine. That's not where it's going to manifest for them. No, and, and it feels really far-fetched that it would be something you eat that yeah. makes your thyroid inflamed or your brain inflamed or you get depression or whatever. You know, a friend of mine I just saw yesterday on Facebook that he just posted that he, he lives in Florida and he was sleeping and all of a sudden he woke up and with pain in his shoulder and he looked and he saw a scorpion scurrying away. And he talked about the numbness and tingling in his arms and in his legs, and they went to the emergency room right away. But the problems were in his nervous system from a scorpion bite, not in his gut. So when you are exposed to a toxin, if it gets into your bloodstream, and from wheat, The reaction occurs within five minutes. When you see the videos on this, within five minutes of wheat coming out of the stomach into the first part of the small intestine, within five minutes, you've got leaky gut. And then your whole body is at risk of having symptoms. And then wherever your genetic vulnerability is, that's where the symptoms are going to show. It might be your gut. It might be your thyroid, it might be your gallbladder, it might be your liver, it might be your joints, it might be your skin. It just depends on your genetics as to where the symptoms will manifest. And I think that's something that not a lot of people actually are aware of is that none of us 
can digest gluten properly. Right. Now that's we get down to the gluten 1.0, like the first. Why is gluten so bad for us? Exactly, exactly. It turns out, you know, we, we have the same body as our ancestors thousands of years ago. We have the same kidneys. They work the same. The same liver, the same eyes. They work the same joints, muscles. We use our brains more, so we have creature comforts. We have food always available, things like that. But our ancestors, they had three basic concerns in life. One, food. Two, shelter. Three, protection from dinosaurs or enemies, you know, bugs. So when they find food, the first thing they do is they sniff it. Does it smell okay? Next, they taste a little, uh, they, they get a little taste of it. Is it a poison? And then they eat it. Now, if there's bad bacteria, bugs, in the food that they eat, it wasn't enough to where it was rotten and it smelled bad, or it didn't change the taste. But if they've got bad bugs, the acid in your stomach is supposed to kill anything. Hydrochloric acid kills everything. But if the acid in your stomach did not kill the bug that was in the food that you ate, you know, I still remember this. I maybe 15 years ago, one night, um, I was out with my uh, a friend and had a couple of drinks and came home and went to bed, woke up a little sweaty, you know, just in the middle of the night, and I was hungry. So I go out and I leave all the lights off and I just walk out in the kitchen. I open the refrigerator, bright light from the refrigerator. And I look and out of the corner of my eye, I turn my head away from the light, but I see the raspberries. I bought some raspberries. So I grab the raspberries and I'm eating them. I didn't quite eat the entire container, but most of them put them back. I go back to bed. The next morning I wake up and when I go out in the kitchen and I open the refrigerator and I look at the raspberries, there's white mold on the raspberries. I had eaten that. You know, the night before, and I didn't know, right? So we're exposed to things all the time. Because of that, and our ancestors were exposed to things all the time. Because of that, any food that comes out of the stomach into the first part of the small intestine, that's where the sentries are standing guard to protect you. And the sentries are called toll-like receptors, and there's nine different toll-like receptors. I'm sorry, you don't need to know that. But toll-like receptor four is just inside the first part of the small intestine. Its job is to recognize a bug coming with the food into the intestine. I guess the bug wasn't killed by the acid in the stomach. So toll-like receptor four says, oh, there's a microorganism here. We better alert, alert. And two things happen. One you activate this protein called zonulin, which creates leaky gut. So immediately you get leaky gut. Why? Because leaky, the job of leaky gut is to bring more water into the intestines to wash out whatever's not supposed to be there. And it's a beautiful life-saving mechanism for us to keep the bad guys out. Now, there are two things. One is a zonulin protein. The second is that it activates the master amplifier of inflammation in the gut called NF-kappa B. So 
the the sentry standing guard sees a bug and calls the alarm out. Leaky gut, wash it out, but also NF kappa B, that's inflammation in the gut to kill anything that might be there. So, and NF kappa B is the major amplifier of inflammation. So, so inflammation in this regard is a good thing, it's right? It's a good thing. Yeah, bad, uh, inflammation is not bad for you. Excessive inflammation is bad for you. We want inflammation for this exact purpose, to kill bugs that we're exposed to every day that aren't supposed to be there. Okay, so we've got this inflammation from NF-kappa B and all the other, they're called cytokines that get produced as a result of NF-kappa B to deal with whatever bug might be there. The problem is, and this first came out in 2006 from a Swedish study from Karolinska, and there have been many, many studies since then that recognize and tell us that gluten in wheat is misinterpreted by the body as a potential harmful component of a bug. And so NF, um, toll-like receptor 4 sees gluten coming out of the stomach and thinks it's a bug. And so it activates the leaky gut and it activates NF-kappa B to create all this inflammation because it's a misinterpretation of a harmful component of a microorganism. Now, and Maureen Leonard is a famous gastroenterologist at Harvard, and in 2017, she did a review of, I think it was 64 studies, I'm not sure, I think it was 64, on this topic, and she said, this response mechanism of toll-like receptor 4 occurs in all humans who consume gluten. So for you that's listening today, if you consider yourself a human, some of you may not, or some of you may think your husband is not human at times. That's okay, right? But this occurs in all humans. You eat wheat, you activate toll-like receptor 4, you get leaky gut, and you get NF-kappa B activation and inflammation. Every now, time. Every time. Now, it's a minor amount of influence, just enough to kill the little bug. But you have to toast for breakfast. You have a sandwich for lunch. You have pasta for dinner. You have croutons on your salad. You have a cookie. You have this day after week after month after year, day in, day out, day in, day out. And the result is, finally, this thing becomes a permanent mechanism, leaky gut and inflammation in your, in your gut that can cause, of course, gut symptoms, but because of the genetics, and it goes um, systemic, the inflammation goes systemic, wherever your genetic vulnerability is, might be your thyroid, takes seven years for Hashimoto's to develop, might stay in your gut, takes seven years for celiac to develop, might be in your joints, takes 14 years for rheumatoid arthritis to develop, might be in your skin and your connective tissue, takes 7 to 11 years for lupus to develop. That's all the predictive autoimmunity things. But you cross the line of tolerance from a minor irritation, gluten being a minor irritation, 
to be a harmful component of a microorganism creating systemic inflammation. Yeah. So you talk about almost everybody eats gluten on a daily basis, um, but not everybody gets systemic inflammation, right? No, 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 no. Everyone gets inflammation in their stomach or, or in their intestines, and of kappa B, but not everyone gets symptoms yeah, because in their intestines. Like you get the inflammation and it heals, and you get the inflammation and it heals. But then it's this concept of oral tolerance also, right? So it's when you yes. lose yes. the tolerance for it, that's when you get the symptoms or you get an autoimmune disease or whatever. Have I understood that right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, Professor Alessio Fasano is at Harvard, and he is the uh, director of the Celiac Center at Harvard. He's the director of the Mucosal Immunology Center at Harvard. That means the lining of your gut, the lining of your lungs, your mucosa. He is professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School a professor of nutrition at Harvard School of Public Health. Oh, my God, he's a busy guy. <laughs> the chief of pediatric gastroenterology at Harvard Mass General. Any one of these positions is a lifelong goal for people at the top of their field. He has five. We think he's going to win the Nobel Prize uh, because he, is, he and his team are the people who have been carrying this message out about leaky gut since 1997 and in hundreds of articles now showing the, the uh, connection. He just came out with an article last year uh, that tells the story. And, uh, you know, a man like that is always careful what he says, every word he says, because he's going to be misquoted very easily. And the title of the article All disease begins in the leaky gut. The role of zonulin in the development of chronic inflammatory diseases. Now, a man like that saying all disease begins in the leaky gut. Not all symptoms begin in the leaky gut. And he talks about the five pillars in the development of chronic inflammatory diseases. Now, this is PhD-level stuff. But when you understand this, then you start working on the PhD to learn all the particulars. But Yeah, let's go for it. <laughs> you bet. So the five pillars. The first is your genetics. Can't do anything about that. That's, that's the deck of cards that you were dealt in life. You know, you got the gene for breast cancer, you got the gene. You got the gene for Alzheimer's, you got the gene. It doesn't mean you're getting breast cancer. It doesn't mean you're getting Alzheimer's. It means if you pull at a chain, the chain always breaks at the weakest link. It's at one end, the middle, the other end, your heart, your brain, your liver, your breasts, your kidneys, wherever your weak link is, that's where the chain's going to break if you pull too hard. So don't pull on the chain so hard is, is the goal. But your genetics are the weak link in your chain. Now, what pulls on the chain? Inflammation. And that's a, a way of thinking about this. But that's your genes. And genes don't turn on and turn off. 
none of them as far as I know, genes operate on a dimmer switch. And you can turn the gene up to be more expressive, like the anti-inflammatory genes, you want them more expressive. And you can turn the genes down to be less expressive, like the inflammatory genes that cause Alzheimer's or they cause breast cancer or any other genetic disease. You can turn them up, you can turn them down. That's number one, genetics. Now, how do you turn them up or turn them down? By number two, environmental triggers. The environment, what you're exposed to in your environment that gets inside your body turns your genes up or turns your genes down. And that's a wonderful way of thinking of it because every meal, the most common source of environmental triggers is what's on the end of your fork. What you put in your mouth has the most profound influence on the expression of your genes more than anything else. So number two is environmental triggers. It could also be the air you're breathing that you take in. Like if you live in a moldy house or you live near a freeway and the pollution, you're breathing that in. That's environmental triggers. And it also be stress, trauma. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The internal hormones that are produced, the stress hormones is an environmental trigger. It's a very important environmental trigger. Absolutely. That's number two. Number three, altering the microbiome in your gut. That you, as you learn more about the importance of the microbiome, I'll just tell you this now, the most important thing you can do to be healthier for you and your family is focus on your microbiome. More than anything else, you'll have the biggest effect, the biggest bang for your buck by building a diverse, healthy microbiome. Now, that's another discussion how to do that, and I'm happy to do that for you another time. But that's number three, because when you have an inflammatory microbiome, because of all the environmental triggers you're taking in that are gasoline on the fire, petrol on the fire, and you have an inflammatory microbiome, that creates number four, the leaky gut. Now, the leaky gut misses patient Your intestines are a tube that starts at the mouth and goes to the other end, winds around in the center there, about 20 feet long or so. The inside of the tube is lined with cheesecloth. Do you know what cheesecloth is? So when you're making a gravy, your grandmother would pour it into the cheesecloth so only the liquid comes out the other side and the clumps stay here, right? Like a sieve, right? Yeah, yeah. So the inside of your intestines are lined with cheesecloth so that when you eat food, that food cannot get into your bloodstream. It has to be digested. It has to be broken down into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces, smaller and smaller and smaller until the pieces are so small, they go right through the cheesecloth into the bloodstream. But when you develop a leaky gut, you get tears in the cheesecloth. And the tear in the cheesecloth allows larger molecules, they're called macromolecules, big molecules, to get through into the bloodstream, these big molecules, before they should have been able to do that. They should have been broken down smaller and smaller and smaller, go further down the intestines, and then when they're small enough, go through the cheesecloth into the bloodstream. 
So when you get these macromolecules going through the cheesecloth into the bloodstream, your brain says, whoa, what's that? That's not supposed to be here. Immune system, fight that. And your immune system fights chicken. If it was a macromolecule of chicken that got into the bloodstream, or it fights apples, or it fights blueberries, or it fights eggs, or it fights soy. It doesn't matter what the food is. If it got through the tears in the cheesecloth, number four of the five pillars, and it gets into the bloodstream, your immune system trying to protect you because you can't make new brain cells or bone cells or skin cells out of macromolecules. You need smaller molecules to build new tissue. Your immune system fights that thing, which creates pillar number five, systemic inflammation. And the systemic inflammation will manifest wherever your genetic vulnerability is, wherever the weak link in the chain is. And that's why some people get it in, in their brains and others get them in their joints, etc. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, that's the PhD level stuff. When you've got that big picture view of the five pillars, then you can understand how every little piece of health information that you are learning fits into the five pillars. Okay, which one does that fit into? Okay, that's an environmental trigger. Okay, there are many environmental triggers, but it seems that gluten is an environmental trigger for me, or it seems that eggs is an environmental, whatever it is. So you then can have the, the platform to understand the big picture of all of the health information you learn on podcasts and reading books and things like that. That way, it's not a piece of information here and a piece there and a piece there and a piece there, and it's really hard to to understand how, how to hold the information. It's very difficult. So when you understand Professor Fasano's five pillars in the development of chronic inflammatory diseases, then you understand why he says all disease begins in the gut because it's the microbiome and intestinal permeability in the gut that allows the macromolecules to get through, whether it's food or bacteria or viruses, into the bloodstream, creating the inflammation that manifests wherever your genetic vulnerability is. So even though you can um, uh, react on very different uh, foods, play, gluten plays a very special role here because it actually can hurt your intestinal lining. Unfortunately, wheat is the primary food that all humans react to, whether you feel it or not. And if you had wheat originally, you know, when you were a baby, if you were eating wheat once a month, maybe once every two weeks, I doubt that you'd ever have a problem because the intestinal permeability that occurs uh, when you're exposed to wheat, and all, all humans get intestinal permeability, uh, as I said earlier, but that permeability, Mrs. Patient, you have an entire new body every seven years. Every cell in your body regenerates, every cell. The fastest is the lining of your gut. Every three days, four days, you have a whole new lining to your gut. So if you had had wheat once every couple of weeks, 
you get a little inflammation, you get a transient intestinal permeability, but it heals. You, you know, you tear the lining a little bit, it heals. Two weeks later, you have a little wheat, you tear the lining, it heals. It's not a big deal. But when you're born and raised eating weed every day, you eventually lose tolerance and you don't heal anymore because you've created this microbiome that's an inflammatory microbiome. And it's constantly tearing the lining, tearing the lining, tearing the lining. So you, you just lose tolerance and now you have a problem with wheat. Now it fall, and then unfortunately your doctors think it's only gonna look like celiac disease or you're fine. But now we know after this discussion, hopefully everybody knows, it can manifest in any tissue in your body. So it doesn't matter if you have gut symptoms or not. So I have a lot of uh, clients uh, to whom I recommend going gluten-free. And uh, that's not something they really want to hear because they love their uh, pasta and their bread, etc. Uh, and uh, almost always I get the question, but is it enough if I just eat less gluten foods? Could I have like my cinnamon cinnamon roll just sometimes? Yeah, the answer is you can't be a little pregnant. You can't have a little gluten once you've crossed the line of tolerance. And so the, the question is, well, have I crossed the line of tolerance? And if you cross the line of tolerance, you do the right test and you find out. I don't care if you have any symptoms or not. If your immune system's fighting wheat, it's causing damage in your body. Wherever your genetic vulnerability is, it's, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of test results now, and there is always autoimmune mechanisms going on in your thyroid, in your brain, in your joints, in your heart. It just depends on your genetics as to where it's manifesting, but we have not seen a case of positive sensitivity to wheat that does not also have positive elevated antibodies to their own tissue, autoimmunity going on. So, and in terms of, can I have a little once in a while? The only way you know for sure, you, you do the proper testing and it comes back positive. Okay, I guess I'll go gluten-free. You go squeaky clean gluten-free for six months. You recheck. If the test comes back negative now, oh, good, good. Can I eat wheat? And the answer, the honest answer is, well, I don't know. It's up to your body. Well, what do you mean? Well, go ahead and eat wheat now uh, for a couple of weeks, and then we'll do another test. And if the antibodies come back, you know that you can't have wheat. And the science is really clear. And it's not just the antibodies to wheat. The antibodies to your thyroid will come back. The antibodies to your brain come back. And you're killing off brain cells. Listen, Blue Cross Blue Shield is the largest for-profit health insurance company in the English language, as far as I know. They published a report last year, in February of last year, and they showed that between 2013 and 2017, that means in four years, there was a 406% increase in the diagnosis of early Alzheimer's in 30 to 45-year-olds. In four years, 406% increase that the younger generation is now feeling the damage to their brain 
that the previous generation, they had to be in their 50s or 60s or 70s. Now it's happening in their 30s and 40s because they've been killing off brain cells, 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 killing off brain cells since they were very young. And it's not just wheat that causes that, but wheat is the primary food environmental trigger for most people fueling the inflammation that's manifesting at their genetic weak link. The real problem is about environmental chemicals, the environmental triggers of all the chemicals we're exposed to on a daily basis. That's a whole nother discussion for another day, but it's affecting our brains mm. terribly. Uh, this is the pandemic that nobody is talking about. Mm. And it's very, very bad. And it's, um, it's going to be written about a lot more now in the next few years. Mm. And thinking about that, even though it might seem really difficult giving up that cinnamon roll, at least um, taking out gluten from your diet, it's a lot easier than staying away from all those environmental toxins because you can't really do much about that. Right, right. It's the first and most important step. You, you get the biggest bang for your buck by starting there. Yes, that's very true. Mm. You know, just yesterday... We were um, uh, we we drove to a town two hours away to see the pediatrician for my son's uh, uh, examination. And when we were driving back, I had heard there was a great gluten-free bakery in that town, and so I said, "Let's stop and get a coffee to go and a pastry." So I pulled in, and it was uh, Sunday around 12 noon, and the bakery was very busy. People are eating breakfast and things. Lovely-looking bakery. Their menu was impressive. And I went up to the counter and looked at their baked goods, and they looked good, very good. And I asked, what do you have that's gluten-free and dairy-free? Because my wife and I try to do both. And they had a couple of things. And so I picked up a couple of things, and they were very tasty on the ride home. But I found myself saying, I said this to my wife, I really miss croissants. I really miss an almond croissant. You know, I just, you talked about cinnamons. For me, it's almond croissants. And uh, I've heard that there's a bakery in Paris that's exclusively gluten-free. Because I've always said, I don't want to go to Paris until I know there's gluten-free stuff there that's really good. <laughs> so now... We'll have to wait a little bit because our son's too young to travel, but we'll go to Paris <laughs> so, I, so I can get a almond croissant gluten-free. But yes, I, I, I say that cute story, you know, because I, I, I've been doing this for uh, over 40 years now. And uh, you, yeah, you're right. You miss the comfort food. You do. But you don't get rheumatoid arthritis or you don't get Hashimoto's thyroid disease or you don't get Alzheimer's. So it's up to you, you know, and once you find that if you identify that you have a sensitivity to wheat, you go wheat free, you're going to feel better. You're, and, but there's still so much stress in life that sometimes we want our comfort food. We want our Cinnabon. We want our almond croissant, you know, whatever it is for you. Yeah, you are going to want that. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I also, because I told you in the beginning that I really, that quitting bread was quite hard for me. Yes. But now, after all these years, I make a special Christmas bread for myself, a gluten-free Christmas bread. And then I enjoy having a sandwich because maybe I miss that kind. You have, we have the yes. Christmas ham and the mustard on top. But after that week, I finished that one. I, I, I don't feel that good, you know, even yes. if it's gluten-free, because it's still bread. It's still uh, grains and uh, whatnot. And uh, so I'm like, okay, I can wait another year for this. It's fine. <laughs> well, unfortunately, and yes, that's great that you have that experience. Unfortunately, Columbia University and Peter Green, a very famous gastroenterologist in the world of celiac disease, published a study in the American Journal of Gastroenterology two years ago. And they hired 804 people and they gave them testing equipment to go out into the communities and go to gluten-free restaurants and order off the gluten-free menu. And when the waiter or waitress took the order and walked away, they opened up their briefcase and they put the testing equipment on the table. When the waiter or waitress came back with the food, ordered off the menu, gluten-free, they put the food in the testing equipment. What did they find? They looked at 5,364 different foods, 804 people testing, 5,634 foods. What did they find? 34% of everything on a gluten-free menu is not gluten-free. 53% of gluten-free pizza is not gluten-free. And I love gluten-free pizza. I'm half Italian, you know? And 51% of gluten-free pasta is not gluten-free. It's contaminated. And so when you learn that, you say, oh, my God, it's hopeless. I can't go out and eat. No, it's not hopeless. You just have to learn about digestive enzymes and what enzymes really work to protect you from inadvertent exposures to wheat. And you take the enzymes. My wife and I, we took our enzymes before we ate the gluten-free pastries driving home yesterday. And then you're fine. You know, see, there's all these little pieces of information with your gluten-free holiday bread. It's probably contaminated. There's probably something in there. And so if you take the proper enzymes beforehand and eat that, you may notice that you feel good and you feel fine, or it could be that you have a sensitivity to the grains. You might be an individual. But it's also the blood, blood sugar and other oh, sure. aspects of bread as well. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. also there are no like safe limits. So even like only a little crumb of uh, gluten bread could actually harm <laughs> your body. Right? Unfortunately, uh, the science is really clear. Uh, another famous gastroenterologist is Detlef Schupan. He's at Harvard and also a couple of universities in Germany that he teaches at. And he talks about a component in wheat called the amylase trypsin inhibitors. Now, that's something in plants that if a bug eats the plant, the amylase trypsin inhibitors tear the cheesecloth in their gut. They get leaky gut and they die so that that bug will not try to eat any more plants like that. That's the purpose of amylase trypsin inhibitors. Dr. Professor Chupan shows us that amylase trypsin inhibitors 
in nanomolar amounts. That's one billionth of a gram. A billionth of a gram activates toll-like receptor 4 in the small intestine. So a billionth of a gram is all it takes to activate the sentry standing guard to protect you of any bugs coming out of the stomach into the small intestine, just a billionth of a gram. So the chef who stirs the pasta on the stove and then takes the same spoon to stir the gluten-free pasta has just contaminated the gluten-free pasta. And that's unfortunate, but that's how sensitive the human body is to wheat. Okay. I know it's time to wrap it up, but I don't want to leave it on a sorry note. No, you know? okay. <laughs> we were, that's we were a little bit shocked there. You could see that. <laughs> like, it's better we wrap up now. <laughs> and so are your listeners. They're shocked. I, and I know that. And But it's a wake-up call. You know, the three-year-old girl who didn't have surgery on her eye that would have affected her for the rest of her life. The tumor went away on a gluten-free diet, right? There are thousands of case studies, literally. Your joints get better. The rheumatoid arthritic patient, they, they, their pain goes away and they can walk better. The schizophrenic that is no longer schizophrenic and needs no medications. I mean, there, there are many case studies of schizophrenics followed by their psychiatrists who no longer need medications. The people with depression who no longer need antidepressants or with anxiety who no longer need anti-anxiety medication. That what you discover is that when you identify the environmental triggers that alter your microbiome, creating the inflammatory environment, causing leaky gut, allowing macromolecules get through into the bloodstream, causing systemic inflammation. When you understand this five-pillar concept and Professor Fasano, it makes sense when Professor Fasano says all disease begins in the gut. And it may be that you're going to need a transition to a gluten-free diet. So you might want to go low gluten for a couple of weeks to transit as you're learning new recipes. Um, it shouldn't have to be so stressful that our healthcare practitioners can teach people. Let's start, Mrs. Patient, with two breakfasts a week, gluten-free. Here's some recipes to try. And then here's some more recipes. Let's, let's move it on to every breakfast is gluten-free. Then let's do every breakfast and two lunches a week that are gluten-free. Then let's move to all the lunches being, and so, you may have to transition to do this, but who cares if you're trans? Who cares if it takes you a few months to go completely gluten free? You just can't live with low amounts of gluten. You 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 won't get the results, but you can transition so that your family is not stressed by this, and you can learn how to do this and live a happy, vibrant, dynamic, young life. Great, thank you for that. It feels a lot better now. Now we're more <laughs> But for you, yeah. it's not over. We also have two questions that we ask all our guests. Uh, and I hope you can answer those for us as well. Uh, the first one is, do you have a daily routine or a ritual that you do for your health that you would like to share with us? 
Oh, yes, yes. Uh, thank you. That's really a wonderful question. Yes, you know, we don't need an alarm clock right now. Our, our son is four months old, and he wakes up somewhere between 4 and 5 a.m., and uh, he sleeps between us. And as he starts to wake up and goo-goos and makes noises and things, Perfect. we're just looking at him. And when he opens his eyes, the first sight he sees is us smiling. And he smiles right away. And he opens, oh, oh. And, you know, he just looks around and looks back at us and smiles some more and then starts talking and shrieking to us, you know, in four-month language. <laughs> it's really funny. But we start our day with this, this beautiful expression of love. And then my job is to make the coffee in the morning. So Marzi stays with him and Googles him some more and changes his diaper. And I make the coffee and my wife's coffee. Uh, I put in a big heaping teaspoon of ghee, two pumps of medium chain triglycerides, two egg yolks in her coffee and collagen. And all of that produces this luscious milk that she's got for baby. And we sit outside, the three of us, and Marzi and I are drinking our coffee, and we just watch the world wake up. We listen to the birds singing. We, uh, some birds come flying by our pool to eat the bugs that got caught in the pool overnight. And, and uh, it's just a beautiful routine to start the day. And we do that every day. Oh, that sounds really lovely. Great. And our last question. If you're only allowed to do one thing for your health, what would that Absolutely be? Absolutely no question about it. The science is very clear. Focus on building a healthy, diverse microbiome. Because that's the transition point between health and disease. All disease begins in the gut. And if you focus on a healthy microbiome, you don't develop intestinal permeability, you don't get systemic inflammation, you don't activate your genes for your genetic vulnerability to produce that particular disease. So no question. I used to see, you know, there's different, I, I used to answer a question like that with different answers depending on what was important in my mind that day. But now there's too much science. It's very clear. A healthy diverse microbiome. And I'll tell you why. 36% of all of the small molecules in the bloodstream are the exhaust of the bacteria in your gut. It's called the metabolites of the bacteria. So this exhaust gets into the bloodstream and they are the messengers turning your genes up or dimming your genes down. So it's the bugs in your gut. That's why depression goes away when you rebuild a healthy microbiome. Anxiety, schizophrenia, because the messengers, for every one message from the brain telling the gut what to do, there are nine messages from the gut telling the brain what to do. And, the, and uh, it was uh, Professor Michael Gerber at uh, Princeton that published his book, the second brain in 1999 that told us that, that the gut is really the first brain, not the second brain, it's the first brain because it's sending the messages up to the brain to make these hormones, they're called neurotransmitters, that completely control how we think, how we process information, 
So 36% of everything in your blood is the messengers from the gut telling the body what to do. So that's where you focus. If there's only one thing you're going to do, you focus on building a healthy, diverse microbiome. That's fascinating. Good advice. Thank you. But between us, we do all of it anyways. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yes. so thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to visit us here on Health Snack and for contributing with all your knowledge. This has been so interesting and so very important. So thank you very much for that. And could you please let our listeners know where they could find out more about you and the work you do? Oh, thank you. Yes, the website is thedoctor.com, the D-R. Dot com. Don't spell the word doctor out, thedr.com. And my books are there. Um, our docu-series is there called Betrayal. It's free to watch. And I think that's a really good place for people who are starting at 101 to get a taste of the 201, 301, 401 master's and PhD level information uh, in a way that just grabs your heart. Yeah. yeah, we will share that with our listeners, actually. Perfect. Perfect. Yes. Thank you so much. And thank you. It's really a pleasure to be with you and and your listeners. And I wish them all Godspeed in their health journey. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Tom. Thank, okay. you. thank you. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.